When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to The Midnight Myth. Super excited to come at you with another episode this week. Hope everybody has been doing great. I know that we have been. But I wanted to start this introduction out with uh, a little bit of heaviness, if you will, a little bit of darkness and unfortunateness. So I want to talk a little bit this week about corruption. And it's been on my mind And there are many different facets and forms of corruption. And the word is rooted in a combination of both. And it comes from Latin for both physical decay and also moral decay, kind of linked into one. And then it was really picked up in the Middle Ages in in English, in old Middle Age English. And then that sort of became the word that we know it today. And my reason for this is, is twofold. Part one of my reason for wanting to talk about corruption was having just rewatched all of The Sopranos, which I think deals heavily in the form of moral corruption, as well as moral corruption linked to physical corruption, as well as the uh, second level that inspires me, uh, point A then to point B, is the just onslaught of corruption that I'm seeing in the news today happening out of Washington, D.C., inspired by our morally bankrupt, spiritually corrupt, and dim-witted current president. And, you know, I don't mean to alienate any Trump supporters out there that are listening to the show, but I have to call it like it is and see it like it is. There was a story about the EPA, um, Scott Pruitt, using the EPA's uh, time, energy, and resources to get his wife a job which is not what the EPA is doing. The, uh, the Trump family is now being sued by the state of New York because of all of the corruption in their phony foundation. And men, so much of this makes me truly and genuinely worry about the decay of our democratic republic and the start of the end of freedom as we know it. And I, and I don't know if that's going to happen. I could be being hyperbolic, but it made me pause and look back and connect the dots between Tony Soprano to Donald Trump and think the theme of this week should be about corruption and specifically moral corruption, which sometimes can relate to, especially in narratives, physical corruption. Yeah. uh, Hi, everyone. When you hear the word corrupt, There might be a few things that pass through your mind. There might be a thought of money and politics, like Derek said, or uh, images of mobsters and gangs buying off politicians or buying off uh, businesses to stick their hand in a pot. Or you might even think of when you were at work today and you got an error that said this disk is corrupted so you can't read the file. But likely somewhere in that collage of images that goes through your brain when you hear the word corrupt, you probably hear the maxim, power tends to corrupt 
absolute power corrupts absolutely. And we thought if we were examining the theme of corruption and power corrupting absolutely, there was probably no better piece of popular culture or storytelling to illustrate that idea than The Lord of the Rings. But before we jump in, if you are a faithful listener of the podcast, or if you're just joining us, we would love to connect with you uh, out of your earphones at some point. So please feel free to hit us up on social media. We are on Facebook. We are on Twitter at The Midnight Myth. And we're on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. You can also head over to the website at www.midnightmyth.com and drop us a line there. And uh, make sure you head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts and leave us a rating or a review if you have the time. It really helps us reach new audiences. So kicking this, this episode off here, talking about corruption, I think um, we wanted to use that lens by which we reinvestigate the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And I think our analysis will cross over whether you're a fan of the movies or whether you're a fan of the books, or if you happen to be me, you're fan of fans of both. <clears throat> For the sake of just being polite, we will spoil things. So if Lord of the Rings is still on your to-do list, consider this your spoiler wall. However, if Lord of the Rings is still on your to-do list, like take a look at yourself in the mirror, bro. <laughs> it's time for you to like do some Lord of the Rings work, bro. Especially or bra. Is bra. that a thing? Is that a thing? No, I don't. I don't know. It is but, uh, not the nineties anymore. No, but. it's not. But if you're a Midnight Myth listener and fan, and you're not hip to the Lord of the Rings, you're kind of disappointing me as the co-host <laughs> here. And I'm talking to you, listener. Anyway, we so, uh, we did do a couple of Lord of the Rings podcasts early in our run, so I would recommend going back and giving those a listen, just for a little bit of a background as to the world building. We really broke apart the influences on the Lord of the Rings and the legacy that it left on fantasy, so it was a pretty holistic exploration. But this time we're going to drill down on that one theme. And to do that, I think it might be prudent if I give everyone my lens of what I mean by moral corruption, if that's okay with you, Laurel. Mm-hmm. So, um, like other things that when we discuss heavy themes of philosophy, uh, I'm not saying that this lens is the correct way to look at moral corruption or physical corruption. It's just the lens by which I'm applying it. So, everything I'm about to say, take it as debatable. Okay. So, that's my little uh, preamble. So, I'm going to use the idea of corruption based upon an idea that emanated from the late Roman Empire. And this is a time, 4th century, where Christianity was really gaining steam amongst both the Roman intellectual elite as well as the Roman imperial elite. The, uh, the religion had just become um, decriminalized, and Constantine was throwing the emperor, throwing patronage around it. And a big question started to emerge amongst early Christian theological uh, societies, and early Christian theological theologians, for lack of a better term. <laughs> and that was the problem of evil. And it goes somewhat like this. You can say that God created the universe and all things, and that God is good. Hence, everything God created is good. Hence, why is there evil? Why would a all-knowing, all-powerful deity create a thing called evil? Does that mean evil is good? Or what? where is evil in this? And this might seem flippant and like an intellectual exercise, but when you're talking about the building blocks of a faith, this was a schism and a problem by which there needed to be an answer. Now, a lot of great um, ancient Roman thinkers and since have tried to tackle this problem, but none more uh, famously than St. Augustine, also known as Augustine of Hippo. He lived, uh, he was born around 354 in uh, the Common Era, also known as 354 AD, in the area of the world we now call Algeria. And he started out as a pagan, later converted to Christianity, and he tackled this problem head on. And he is one of the early philosophical framers of Christian thought. And his idea is that, yes, God is good, and God has created all things good. Hence, what is evil then? Evil is the lesser of good. So let me put that in more context. If God created all things and all things are good and evil exists, evil is actually just a depletion of the goodness of God. 
Rather, it is one turning away from goodness. It is a depletion of the love of the Father. It's like how um, cold is actually just the absence of heat. It's heat leaving an object so that it becomes cold. And in this way, and I think that's a very good metaphor, in this way, there are a few fundamental things that you need. You would need, for starters, free will. So people have to act out of their own independent will, which means we make choices. And some of those choices are going to be moral choices. And hence, once we start getting towards evil, we see that evil is the choice to deprive ourselves of goodness, right? So evil is something that also injures. And any injury is also a deprivation of goodness, so, and if there were no deprivations, there'd be no injuries, hence there'd only be goodness, etc. I'll give you a quote. For when the will abandons what is above itself and turns to what is lower, it becomes evil, not because that is evil to which it turns, but because the turning itself is wicked. Otherwise, there is no actual evil in the universe. There is only the corruption of leaving goodness. You turning away from goodness is what is evil. There is no actual evil thing. Right. Where Make I, sense? Where I think this is interesting and how it intersects with Lord of the Rings especially is that many of the villains of that saga are characters who were once good, who were once pure, and had something corrupt their soul or their heart or their mind. So I'm thinking specifically of Gollum, who used to be Smeagol, and by being enchanted by the ring and turning against his friend, became the hideous and uh, just loathsome creature that he is now. The other example being Saruman, who's a much bigger villain in the saga, who is, if you've read any of the like Silmarillion or the background tales, the wizards were like angels, essentially, who were sent to Earth to be pure and be on the earth and make it better and lift it up. But Saruman, by being incarnated into a human body and given human desires and needs, was corrupted by that and became the monster that he is. Right, and in this lens, it is a choice. When you choose to yeah. turn away from goodness is when you have you've succumbed to the corruption. So I think that's the lens by which I put on the Lord of the Rings version of goodness and corruption. And I think you stated pretty much plainly the reasons why. All of the characters that do harm, that do injury, that turn away from goodness were at some point themselves not wicked. Yeah. Uh, and a huge part of what causes that turn, what causes that corruption, is the promise of power, right? So whether it's the hard, fast symbol of power in the ring of power that grants its master dominion over the entire earth, um, or it's just being able to stand in a position where you know you're better than other people and you can command them. The promise of that power is extremely um, tempting and causes people to turn away from what they know is right and wrong. Well, I'm glad that you brought the ring up because I agree with you, but I'd like to add a layer there. Yeah. So let's discuss the ring for a second, if you will. Sure. The ring is corruption manifest. Yeah. So to many characters, it is the seduction of the power. So if this is Gladriel in, uh, in when, when Frodo in the, the, the first movie, first book, Fellowship of the Ring, he presents the ring to Gladriel and she says she passes the test by denying it and she seeks power there. So whether that's Gladriel or Famir who sees the ring, and says, hey, we have a weapon now that can change our fortunes in the war. Whether it's Gandalf saying to Frodo, don't tempt me by trying to give me the ring. I would want to use it from good, but I would be evil and terrible. But there's another form of corruption that the ring represents too. What's that? That is the corruption that actually affects characters like Boromir, right? Yeah. So Boromir doesn't want to necessarily wield the ring for all power. Its very presence slowly and assuredly drives him mad. In it, there's an implicit lust for this thing. And yes, part of that's linked to power, but part of that is linked to 
an inherent corruptive force right. in this just world. Never lays a hand on it. Just by being in its close proximity, it drives him into an almost murderous rage. And then Frodo, who succumbs to the power of the ring, ultimately, yeah. who can't bring himself to destroy it, doesn't succumb because he wants power from the ring. It comes from this idea that there can be an inherently corruptive influence. And that influence is, to me, the, the ring is a metaphor to the idea that there is something about us morally that can be drawn to selfishness, to greed, yeah. to want something. That, to me, there's a, a slightly like repudiation of just pure individualism. It's about me and what I want. So Frodo's journey is to save the world by destroying the ring. Mm -hmm. When he says no, I won't destroy the ring, he's putting himself above the fate of the world. Right. And that's the decision that's corrupted. He likes the ring and wants it. And though the ring kind of gets into your mind and makes you mad, you know, because it's magical, at the same time, it's still the decision of selfishness, you know, uh, another great example is Smeagol slash Gollum. Yeah. He doesn't want to wield the power of the ring. He just wants to possess. Yeah. He just wants to own it and just have it be his and live under a cave. So while I think, yes, the ring is a conduit to power to some, and some can see it as such, but then to others, it's just about possession. And, you know, to to Frodo, who is seemingly like one of the purest of heart characters, the only purer character I can think of in the entire saga is Sam. Uh, but even in the those of us who seem the most good, who seem the most um, caring and empathetic and kind, can succumb to that greed or succumb to that selfishness, which I think is an interesting observation. So the question that I would say then, compared to the characters tempted by the ring to wield its power versus the characters who are just tempted by the ring by virtue of his presence, what's the difference, right? Why are some tempted to ultimate corruption to wield it for power versus some that are tempted to it purely by virtue of it being there? I have a theory. Oh, okay. I don't know if it'll hold water, so I'm, Let's I'm throwing this out. out here. It's knowledge. Yeah, okay. So those who are tempted to wield it for power know that they can wield it for power. Yeah. They are like, and they have a, they also have an enemy by which they want to destroy, right? So they're like, if we have this power, we will be able to change the course of the world for good is the original reason and purpose for it. But through that, they would ultimately become evil. So I think there's a connection between knowledge and the ultimate corruption and power. Yeah, well, knowledge is power. And then for the other characters, I think it's, they don't really know that the ring can do what it can do. Actually, now that I'm saying this out loud, Boromir kind of knows its power. Boromir knows its power, and he talks about wielding it, I think, in the early Fellowship of the Ring. Um I think he he does mention like, hey, we we actually could use this thing. It's a gift, he calls it. Yeah, um, but it is interesting that that he is just, you know, he's man. He's pretty much just enthralled with the shininess of it. Like, oh, that thing is coveted, and therefore I covet it. So I think you're on the right track with that interpretation of his his draw to it. Right, and I think on both levels, the corruption is equally. Uh, palpable, 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 palpable. I think on both levels, it's equally palpable Yeah, and equally, um, you know, manifest. But it shows us that people of all dispositions are susceptible, are vulnerable to corruption, whether we are the kind of people who seek power or the kind of people who seek to blend into the background. So a Bilbo can be seduced by the ring and a Gandalf can be seduced by the ring. Any one of us can feel that way. Um, you know, exploring kind of this idea of power and the ring of power especially, um, it occurred to me, and this is something that I've taken for granted for a really long time, um, and I'm sure other people have as well, that power, the idea of power, is uh, a prime motivator for villains of all stories everywhere. I, I would say 90% of villains and supervillains 
uh, want power for power's sake. They have this thirst to have uh, you know, influence over the entire world or galaxy or universe. And that is just taken for granted as like, oh yeah, well, it's all about power. He just wants to have power. And that feels like um, natural and that feels believable. But it occurred to me that I'm not the kind of person who would seek power. Um, and I wonder what causes people to yearn for that, to want that thing that we all talk about as inherently corruptive. Uh, so I was trying to explore, you know, whether power-seeking, thirst for power, is inherent to human nature, is coded into our, our humanity somehow. And I ran into a few really interesting studies about the psychology of power. And there's a recent study that was... Uh, it was Columbia and the University of Cologne and a Dutch university that I will not slaughter the name of, but I will put in the show notes somewhere, uh, who suggested that the primary drive behind the quest for power is more often the desire for autonomy rather than influence. So instead of wanting to rise to the top to have control over everybody else, the thirst for power in most people is all about wanting to live one's own life, wanting to self-determine and this jives with all of these theories of psychology that say it's fundamental to our humanity that we have self-determination, that we have free will. And by ascending some ladder of ambition, we actualize that autonomy better than if we are a subordinate of someone, which I think gets into you exploring two ways of being corrupted by the ring, whether that's influence or... Uh, temptation, because either one of those provides you a certain type of autonomy. Interesting thought. Um, yeah. Yeah. I find it interesting that you use the language of free will and self-determination sort of um, interchangeably right. in, that, in that point, because I'd always thought of those as philosophically, you know, people either have free will or don't. Self-determination is a society based upon saying you can control your destiny, which I guess is a form of free will. Um, I also think that, you know, you can start from the desire of wanting to live your own life, wanting to write your own, your own narrative. You can start from a place which most of us are sympathetic to, I would say, in America, because we are taught that is what freedom means. Um, and largely, I would agree with that. I don't disagree. But we are taught, hey, self-determinative liberalism is the cornerstone of freedom. You can write your own destiny. You can choose to be what you can be. What do you want to be when you grow up? It can be anything you want. You An determine astronaut. that, yeah. right? You know, you want to be a cop. You want to go to the moon. You want to, you know, dig up dinosaur bones. You could be anything you want. We're taught that from a long, young age. And what I think is interesting is from that little um, intellectual acorn out comes this oak tree in which on it there is a branch called power. Yeah. And the ability to say, I can be what I want. And the question is, if power is inherently corrupt, as the ring of power suggests, every branch on that oak tree then becomes poisonous. Right? Yeah. The fruit that it bears no longer... Can, can heal or help or grow new life. And I wonder if that is the paradigm that we're locked in when I think of where we started this episode, which is what the F is happening to America right now. Right. Are we seeing a world in which uh, we have Sarumans and Grimmer Wormtongues running it and... Uh, <clears throat> Does that mean that eventually a Sauron will just seals, seize absolute a power? A dark lord, yeah. No, that's, that's really, and this is the idea behind absolute power corrupting absolutely. The uh, sort of ethical ideals of self-determination and living your own life and individualism uh, and the, the good traits in you like empathy and compassion and leadership and bravery and ambition uh, might propel you to power, but once you're there, you might lose hold of those things. Uh, and there have been some other studies, I think, that are, are super interesting by this guy, uh, Keltner, who um, 
who studied this idea of absolute power corrupting and found some sort of scientific links between those ideas where, uh, so we have these things called mirror neurons in our brains that are sort of a corner, a cornerstone of our empathy. So they are, um, they're little things that fire that allow us to get into the shoes of another person. So this guy did a study where, uh, a group of people, a group of regular guys, watched a uh, another person squeezing a stress ball. And when they were hooked up to a brain scanner, as they watched the guy squeeze that stress ball, the same neurons that would fire when you're squeezing a stress ball would fire in the people watching. Then he had a group of people who were considered powerful. They had high-powered jobs or CEOs or such, watched the same activity. Those things didn't fire. So the idea is that people in power sometimes can have those neurons or those empathetic cornerstones severed, uh, equating to almost a form of brain damage, uh, which is, is super interesting because the things that get you to power, you might lose as soon as you get there. And you mentioned Grimma Wormtongue, who is a character I really, really want to explore uh, in terms of what he does and what his corruption is. Um, so I want to kind of break down this scene from the two towers where we dive into Grimma Wormtongue and his influence on Theoden, the king of Rohan. So when we get to Rohan and we meet our beloved king Theoden, he is not really Theoden. Uh, this is the most powerful man in this part of the country, and yet he is basically the living dead and his nails are overgrown, and he looks dirty, and his beard is falling down to the ground, and he's all gray, and his eyes are glazed over, and it's because his ear is being whispered in by Wormtongue, whose name is very, very telling in terms of what he is and what he does. Uh, in an earlier scene, he makes some really poisonous advances on Eowyn, uh, a beloved character, and she says, your words are poison which I think is really significant because it tells us about the, uh, the power of language. And this character, sort of under the influence of Saruman, the evil wizard, is controlling the person that we are supposed to be depending on to keep us safe as people of Rohan. Uh, he's controlling the person who controls the narrative and who controls the outcome of major, major life events for the entire world. Um, Wormtongue is interesting, and the idea of your words being poison is interesting because I think of its connection to Shakespeare. Um, power being a corruptive force is very, very prominent in Shakespeare's plays. Um, most specifically, we're, we're going to think of Hamlet and, to a large extent, Macbeth as well. Uh, but especially in Hamlet, words being poison is a, uh, an image that comes up a lot. Poison is poured into the ear of the king who is, who is slaughtered in the beginning of Hamlet, and more poison is used literally throughout the play, but the most important poison that is used is manipulative language. Uh, so Hamlet says something manipulative to Ophelia, and it drives her insane. Or Hamlet pretends to be mad, and everybody else goes into a tizzy about it. Um, and the entire world of Denmark breaks down and is rotten and is, uh, is falling apart and has these visible, these visual signs of corruption, just like what we're seeing in Theoden, like what you talked about before, physical corruption uh, that is all broken apart because poison is being spread, not just in the form of you know, evil poisoning liquids, but in the form of untruth and in the form of uh, dishonest language, which I think is really interesting when it comes back to Lord of the Rings and our present condition. I'm glad that you brought that up. And I'd like to add another layer because I'd like to <clears throat> um, go back to the idea of the Augustine method of evil and the Augustine explanation of evil, that it is a choice made out of autonomous free will to turn from goodness. And when we look at Grimma Wormtongue and his relationship to King Theoden, we understand that it is Grimma Wormtongue that first opened up King Theoden to Saruman's magic and allowed Saruman to walk in and conquer and take over his mind. And 
I would say that this is a Tolkien way of refuting Augustine's definition of moral corruption. Yeah. In that King Theoden is robbed of autonomy and he is corrupted but without choice. And I think that is a element by which connecting to our earlier point of those who are corrupted by the ring because they want to use it and those that get corrupted, that I think Tolkien is saying that there are things within this universe that can decay you morally and those things may not be upon you due to choice. And you might not even know it. And be aware of it. Yeah. And what does Gandalf say as soon as Saruman is free of uh, Theoden's mind? I'm sorry, Theoden is free from Saruman's control, I rather should say. Right. He says, breathe the free air. Yeah. Where now he is able to make choices. And what is Frodo's journey with the ring but a thing that circumstance placed upon him? I think it is a repudiation of the idea of self-determination. Sometimes we can't determine the outcome of our destinies, and sometimes we can. But in the era and in, in times of which evil rings uh, have, meant, have you know, shown up and you happen to own them, the only choice that you have, as Gandalf says, is what to do with the times you are given. Absolutely. And, oh, yeah. And I think because of that, it says that we might have a little less free will than we tend to think that we have. Because I certainly didn't choose to live under Donald Trump as a president. Right. That was not my choice, you know. But what are we doing with the times that are given? Right. And the, the challenge and question that I have is, what are we Midnight Myth listeners doing with the challenges that are given to us now? How are we meeting them? Are we meeting them courageously or cowardly? Because maybe we can't make a fundamental choice between goodness or the turning away of goodness. It's not that binary. St. Augustine, that lens that he had, what I learned from Lord of the Rings, is that it's broken. It's a shattered and incorrect moral compass to guide ourselves because so many things are outside of our control. But what do we do with the times that are given? To me, is the sort of moral fabric and moral lace by which all of the Lord of Rings ties together. That you may not control whether or not you possess a ring of power. You possess it. What do you do? Do you throw it into Mount Doom or do you put it on your finger? Right. I think that is also the difference between characters such as Gladriel, Gandalf, and Frodo. Because Frodo has it, right? So he has an entirely different subset of moral choices now that he has this ring than Gladriel, who might have it. Right? Gladriel doesn't have the ring, so she has an entirely different outlook of choices. Do I take the ring from Frodo? If so, what does that mean? Do I not take it? If I have it, what power? So Gladriel in this in this moral exercise has more free will right. than Frodo. Right. You know, Frodo has less, less free will in this. And so that Frodo has to decide now that I have it, oh well, maybe I can give it to this really powerful, you know, psychic elf. And, and relieve myself of this burden. Yeah. And she's just like, no, it's too great for me to bear. Sorry, Frodo. I'm going to diminish and go to the West. Right. And become a legend. You have to figure out how to do this. And only you. Sorry, you don't have any free will. And I think that to me is, is where I look at corruption is sometimes, yes, you can choose. And sometimes your quest for power, which I think is so true, could drive from your own narcissistic will to write your own destiny. Or maybe that's not even a narcissistic will, but just what you were taught, you know, what you believe. But once you get to a certain point, I think we do need to understand and relinquish that sometimes things happen outside of our control. They are not a matter of our own free will. And what we do with them will ultimately determine how corrupt we are or are not. Well, yes, absolutely. And and to, to backtrack a little bit, but I think on this same point, what is worm tongue but fake news, which is something that we can't necessarily control. I love that. Right. Continue. He, I'm he sorry. is manipulation. He is language that is used to achieve, you know, a certain agenda, whether or not it is true. 
He is that uh, you know wicked voice whispering in your ear something that is just meant to poison you. And we can't control what articles pass our Facebook feed. You know, we can't we can't control that algorithm to a, a major extent. And that algorithm dictates a lot of our lives, uh, unfortunate as that is. And we can't we can't control what information enters our ears um, to to a certain extent. But we can control how we confront that information. We can control how hard we scrutinize. We can control whether or not we check our sources. And we can control, uh, you know, our own reactions to that information. You know, this is another thing that recent studies were done um, to explore how people react to fake news. And they really tied cognitive behavior and cognitive uh, ability to your understanding of false information where like if you're someone with a little lower cognitive ability, you're going to have a little more mental clutter and you're going to have a difficult time changing your mind even if you hear that a fake news story is fake. If you had your your bias confirmed, you're not going to wipe it away. Uh, and that's something that that is that causes fear for me is, is people... Um, seeking confirmation bias and allowing that corruption to sink in even deeper. And when they learn the truth, refusing to erase that piece of information that corrupted them. And that gets us to the ends. <laughs> does it? It absolutely does. So this is an interesting midnight myth boomerang. The ends are the tree creatures of Lord of the Rings they are relegated to myth. No one even knows that they exist. Most don't believe that they exist. They are legitimately the forgotten race of all the magical races of Middle Earth. And in that, we get the opportunity to see the Ents commune and discuss whether they will get involved into the politics and warfare of the world outside. And what do they do when they communicate with each other? They confirm their own biases. They say that the Ents are not a part of the world, that they are just going to live within themselves. And uh, they say this is a decision based upon their age, which they equate to their wisdom. And they're in no rush, even though the world is about to fall into a corrupt regime that will literally destroy them. Yeah. Yeah. They, the forest is an echo chamber. They propagate their own biases back to each other rather than challenge their assumptions. If the ants teach us anything in the two towers that one confronted with their own annihilation of their kind, they are finally spurned to action. But when left to act morally responsible and when left to act with a sense of duty to the world writ large, when asked to sacrifice for just the pure altruistic sake of sacrificing to preserve those that are not part of their own tribe, what do they decide to do? We ants will weather things as we always have. Yeah. And that is a, the, the echo chamber of the ants. And if anything, to your point, Tolkien is telling us that that is not okay. It's another form of corruption, right? The Lord of the Rings is really masterful. Tolkien is masterful in showing us so many forms of this. We've already talked about, you know, power corrupting. We have talked about temptation. Uh, but for the Ents, it's comfort. It's routine, uh, which sort of feels like what causes xenophobia in America today. Like, I'm used to people looking a certain way, acting a certain way, and conforming to... Uh, the power structures that have always been here and have always worked for me. Um, therefore, if the country starts to look a little browner, if the country starts to get a little gayer, and if people start to challenge the things that I say, then I'm going to react in fear to that. Therefore, comfort becomes its own kind of corruption. Yeah, we ends will weather things as we always have. Make the forest great again. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what I wonder is, does the Lord of the Rings give us a model to fight this? Does the Lord of the Rings tell us how to uh, you know, work our way out of corruption? And I think I found a model in, this, in the this search for power um, and, and how it shows us a way out of 
the most corruptive tendencies of power. Uh, and that's again in Theoden especially. Um, but there's some interesting uh, anecdotal evidence out there about how powerful people maintain empathy, how powerful people maintain their ability to uh, work for the common good and act ethically and morally. And my favorite anecdote about this has to do with Winston Churchill. Uh, and The Lord of the Rings in, is being written in the 50s, so it is a post-World War II world where it's very aware of uh, the, the New World Order and the conflicts that arose in that, uh, that time period. But Winston Churchill was one of the most powerful men, if not the most powerful man in the world during World War II. And he was a pretty gruff guy. He was honest and he you know, knew that he was the shit and he knew that he had to do things that nobody else had the guts to do. Um, but people talk about his wife, Clementine, and how she wrote him a letter when she noticed that he was being a little less kind to his, uh, his subordinates, and the letter says, My darling Winston, I must confess that I have noticed a deterioration in your manner, and you are not as kind as you used to be, she writes. Which is loving, she calls him darling, it's respectful, it says, I know that you were a good man, uh, but right now you're acting like an asshole, and it's extremely, extremely honest, and without that, we have to wonder if you know, Winston Churchill might have gone crazed with power. I'm not, I'm not sure, but I think having a support system and surrounding yourself with people who respect you and love you and yet will tell you if you've got egg on your face is, is crucial to being able to wield power ethically. And now this is a, a position that we imagine uh, first ladies probably holding a lot or spouses of powerful people but also counselors of powerful people. If you surround yourself by smart, ethical, honest, and respectful people, you're probably going to lift yourself up and keep yourself humble. You have to be reminded to shake off your grandiosity sometimes and act like a human being. And I think Theoden gets this in the bop on the head he gets from Gandalf. I think Theoden gets this uh, you know, from Aragorn. I think Theoden gets this from Eowyn. I mean, give me the specifics. Right. Um, so when Theoden is uh, in his chambers and he's under the control of Saruman and, uh, and Wormtongue and he is clearly, like, just being a jerk and, you know, saying no one is welcome here and we will only fight for ourselves and we are the most important thing and get out, um, Gandalf literally is doing a spell and hits him as hard as he possibly can on the head to knock Saruman, the physical corruption, out of him, and that wakes him up and brings him back to, oh, the face of his niece who he loves, oh, the hall that he respects and cares for. And in that moment, he finds anger at Wormtongue, who has corrupted him so. And so he picks up his sword and swings it at Wormtongue, and Aragorn is there to catch the sword and implore him to show mercy, saying, you are powerful and you absolutely have the power to do this, to take vengeance, but I know you're better than that. And by saying you're better than that, it reminds Theoden that he is better than that. And what does Aragorn do next? He says, hail Theoden king. Yeah. And bows before him. Right. And that's what makes Theoden a good king is that he listens to the people who he, uh, he needs to listen to. It's got to be an exchange of support. So the people coming to the powerful person have to approach with respect, with loyalty, with honor, and yet have to be brutal in their honesty and have to be uh, careful and compassionate and remind the person to shake off their grandiosity. I think that's great because Theoden is so deeply flawed and is so grief-struck he is, uh, from the death of his um, his son, as soon as he gets freed from Saruman's spell, and he makes blunders, military blunders, strategic blunders. Um, he acts vindictive and vengeful towards Gondor when Gondor needs help, and he's just like, well, they didn't help me. And what makes him a hero, what makes him a, a character who overcomes his his desire to be corrupt 
is that push comes to shove, he makes the good decision because he has surrounded himself by good people that support him. Yeah, and who act as sort of symbolic superegos, like Clementine was for Winston Churchill, the little angel on your shoulder telling you what's right and what's wrong. And you can choose to listen to them or you can choose to flick them off. And, um, and I think that is also very interesting and an instructive when we sort of diagnose power in America at the, the executive level and why it seems to be just so chaotic, disorganized, and, and just undisciplined. It's because there's not a single person around Donald Trump telling him to stop being such a fucking asshole. Right. Well, and he's surrounded himself with people who are willing to feed and stroke his ego. And if they're not willing to do so, they're out. Uh, So that exchange of support is not there. Even if he did have a person in his cabinet who was willing to stand up to him and say, hey, man, I love you. I think you're great. But nobody likes that you're doing this. You know, he'd kick him out. Um, Who would you rather have in your court? A bunch of orcs or Aragorn, right? But I and think- like it's a, no, but it's a legitimate question if you have power, right? Because some people would rather have the orcs, yeah, that will just do what you say whenever you say it, you know. And the orcs are going to help you maintain power, right? Because you got an army of orcs, you got a lot. You could do a lot with an army of orcs, you know. But like none of them are going to help you be a more empathetic or uh, more compassionate or more reasonable ruler. And they won't challenge you, yeah. Whereas an Aragorn is going to be like, hey, you got a duty to help these people. Right. Right. Your power doesn't exist for you. It exists for them, those that need the help. I, I think we are, we, are, we are in a really interesting conversation with the nature of power as it relates to corruption. Yeah. Um, but where I was going next with that is, is it's, in in America, it's more uh, than just being about who the president surrounds himself with in the White House. It's about uh, who's creating the narrative. It comes back to language as uh, as poison or as salve. So is there a press that is continuing to stroke the ego of the president, of the person in power? Is there a press that is creating a narrative that tells people the president is all-powerful and is doing amazingly? This is also a thing we see in North Korea with propaganda right now. Um, Or is there a press that holds the president's feet to the fire? Is there a press that comes in with honesty, with journalistic integrity, and with with honor, but still says, hey, you have to do better? And who does the president listen to? Uh, And with with a free press in our nation, which is a, a thing that is a blessing to have. Um, We have a cacophony of voices, um, but the threats to that free press and the idea that, um, that one man in power can say, this is the truth, this is not the truth, and can twist and gaslight and make words mean things that they don't mean is truly terrifying because that's what makes words into poison. Yeah, totally agree. That's what makes uh, Grimma Worm Tongues. That's what makes Saruman to the Hill Tribes spreading fake news about what uh, Rohan has done to their people so that he could inspire an insurrection amongst Rohan's less um, uh, politically aware, politically corrected, and intellectually savvy. You know, <laughs> Saruman demagogues. Yeah. He goes out and says, you know, Rohan's responsible for all your problems. They cause all of these things and gets a bunch of uh, peasants, a armed mob to, you know, do an insurrection against their just and noble king. And Wormtongue is a sycophantic puppet who goes out and Kellyanne Conway's and Sarah Huckabee Sanders all over this land. Man. Um, all right. I feel pretty good. Any final thoughts or do you have a, another segment you'd like to, to, I think final thoughts, it's it's a really interesting conversation to explore just this one theme of Lord of the Rings, which is clearly not the only or even the most obvious theme of Lord of the Rings, but um, I, I think that it is the the best story to look at when exploring the idea of what corrupts uh, humanity, what corrupts human nature, and how we fight it. Uh, so it's 
it's exciting to look back to that example and say, hey, there is a way to, there's a way to take power, there's a way to seek power and still be ethical. And there is a part of all of us that still has the capacity for ethics and morality, even if we soar to heights we had never dreamed of before. Hashtag be Samwise. Hashtag be Samwise. You know, my, my final thought is that I don't know any of the answers to any of the problems that we are facing, but I see echoes in the mythical world of Lord of the Rings that some of the characters may have been dealing with similar problems. Um, the decay of free institutions, the rise of authoritarianism, the destruction of the ecosystem that sustains and, and creates life and the ultimate corruption of powerful individuals so that they can help destroy the world and make it less free. And I think the, the best thing that I can say in terms of a response to that is what are we doing to fight for what we love? You know, when it is our darkest moments, are we, picking up a starving, battled friend and carrying them to where they need to be? Or are we using, you know, the Palenthias to coordinate an army to kill the innocent? And I don't know if we have free will or not. I don't know if St. Augustine is right in, in what makes evil and corruption in the world I don't have the answers, but I will say this. I'm willing to fight. Yeah. And until next time, be kind.